Friends, I invite you to take your Bible or take one from the pew rack in front of you and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read a small section of that chapter starting in verse 13. Under the sovereignty of God, dumb luck from our perspective, we're already scheduled to read this section of scripture as we launch into our summer sermon series together. He's leading us by his spirit. Let's give our attention now to this section of his word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that even when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Great God, you are real and you are worthy to be praised with every thought and every deed. And now, great God of highest heaven, I ask that you would indeed glorify your name through me. Would you rule, overrule the words of my lips and would our hearts by your spirit be attentive to your voice in your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Friends, it seems that America is polarizing over religion. It is getting both more religious and less religious at the same time. Last week, we quoted new statistics from the Pew Research Center, which showed on one hand that the percentage of people who would identify themselves as Christians in America is declining at the rate of about a percentage point a year. And yet the same research showed on the other hand that certain churches with supposedly obsolete beliefs in the infallibility of the Bible and miracles are growing. In other words, the church is both shrinking and growing. The population is paradoxically growing both more religious and less religious at the same time. America, it seems, is polarizing over religion. Now, of course, the events of this past week make this reality easy to feel. It was a reality before, but perhaps is now a reality that is easier for us to feel, as our Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is a legal right in every state. Some hailed it as a great victory for America. Others condemned it as an out-of-control act of judicial tyranny. America, it seems, is polarizing over religion. And as a church, we have to consider what our response will be. What will our response to this continued polarization be? Of course, the issue of the week itself is actually quite clear from a biblical perspective. The Bible teaches that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. 
From Genesis through Revelation, the authority of Scripture witnesses to the nature of biblical marriage as uniquely bound to the complementarity of man and woman. Jesus put it in much simpler language when he said at Mark 10, verse 6, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This truth that marriage is the union of one man and one woman is biblically indisputable, biblically uncontroversial, and thus for us it's non-negotiable. We're committed to the Bible's position and will remain faithful to it. The Supreme Court's ruling may change the law of the land, but it can't change God's good design for human flourishing. Of course, we remember and are humbled that same-sex marriage is not the only or even the worst form of sexual sin. It is one on a list, and we are all on that list. But it is a sin, so we'll not conduct same-sex ceremonies in our sanctuary, nor will our pastors officiate such ceremonies elsewhere. However, at the same time, We will continue to be a home and seek to be a home for believers who wrestle with same-sex attraction as they seek to live in joyful obedience to Jesus. With the same kind of success and the same kind of failure that we all experience. And friends, for those in our flock that I know would describe you this morning, I want you to know that I'm praying that the court's decision and the Christian response to it will not serve to further alienate you from a church that you may have felt alienated from already. Here at McLean Press, I, we stand with you in your struggle just as I, we need you to stand with us in our struggles. And of course, we'll seek to continue to be in relationship with people who would identify as part of the LGBT community seeking to share our lives and the gospel with them. However, as soon as we touch on these latter points, we start to touch on a larger question. Namely, as America polarizes over religion, how should we then live? How should we seek to navigate this milieu? What kind of Christians will we be? Clarity of thought is one thing, but knowing how to live out our faith is another. How do we want our church to be known in these days? At the outset, I think it's helpful and probably wise to remind ourselves of two things. First of all, I think it's helpful and wise to remind ourselves that these questions, how should we navigate life in a polarizing world, these questions aren't new questions. They're not new questions. In fact, the New Testament assumes that Christians will be in the minority and indeed that will likely face opposition, if not persecution, for faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't put it all that delicately when he said at Mark 13 verse 13, everyone will hate you because of me. And in case we didn't quite catch on, he said again in John 15 verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me. First, The book of First Peter that we read from together a moment ago itself was written to believers who were confused or discouraged by the persecution they were encountering for their faith. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we should downplay change. 
For example, as it relates to the event of this week's ruling, we could say that the pace of change and the institutionalization of it and indeed the unknown implications of it are all cause for further reflection and concern. What I am saying is that we should not be surprised by it. Indeed, it's biblically and indeed historically naive to think that the larger culture will celebrate or even tolerate faith in Jesus Christ. The call to live as salt and light presupposes a world in need of such a presence. So yes, these questions, how should we then live? How will we navigate this new? What kind of Christians will we be? These questions aren't new questions. The times, they are a-changing. Bob Dylan first sang that refrain back in 1964, but that song has been covered in every decade since by uh, over 40 different artists. That refrain, it seems, captures the spirit of every age. It would appear that the times, they are always a-changing. The more things change, the more they stay the same. In the words of another songwriter, there's nothing new under the sun. And these questions aren't new either. Secondly, at the outset, I think it's helpful and wise to remind ourselves that while times may change, our God does not. He is immutable, meaning unchangeable. Unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in his truth. Nothing has changed with the God of grace, nor with the grace of the gospel. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same, when? Yesterday and today. For how long? (laughs) Forever. Forever. The gospel story says that all men and all women are created in the image of God and are therefore inherently deserving of dignity and respect. That's true of me. That's true of you. It's true of the LGBT community. It's true of the entire world. And yet the gospel story continues to say that all men and all women have sinned and stand in need of forgiveness and healing. That's true of me. That's true of you. It's true of the LGBT community and it's true of the entire world. And yet, and yet, the gospel story concludes that all men and all women are offered grace in Jesus Christ. And that's true of me. And that's true of you, and that's true of the LGB community, and that's true of the entire world. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so do you believe this morning, do I believe this morning, that the gospel is in fact my only hope in this life and the next? That my greatest guilt, there's grace for that. My deepest shame, There's grace for that. Do I believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that it's our only hope? And also that it's the only hope for the world. If you do believe that, the good news is that because the God of grace does not change, the grace of God is still offered to us. Grace for me, grace for you, grace for the LGBT community, grace for the entire world. Our hope is not built or destroyed by the events of Friday. It's built upon a different Friday. And so there's grace. 
Grace to stop us in our tracks. Grace to turn us back to God. Grace to wash away our guilt. Grace to take away our shame. Grace to help us follow him. Grace to make us like his son. The times, they are changing. But we're used to that. Nothing has changed with the God of grace, nor the grace he offers us. And so as we consider this question, how should we live as America polarizes over religion, the real challenge is this. How do we take this unchanging God and this unchanging gospel to our ever-changing world? That's the question that's before us. How do we take this unchanging God, this unchanging gospel, to this ever-changing world? It's a question that Christians have been wrestling with for millennia. And, of course, the answer is ever-evolving with endless layers and endless nuance. But this morning, God has us in 1 Peter chapter 3, a passage that gives us much guidance. The key verse comes in verse 15. Do you see it there? How do we take an unchanging God and an unchanging gospel to an ever-changing world? Always, we read, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Four brief observations on this text as we launch ourselves into our summer sermon series. First thing I want to note together is that when we consider how we can take our unchanging God and his unchanging gospel to this ever-changing world, the first thing we see is that the context for doing so is relationship. The vehicle by which this is done, the context for this kind of work is relationship. I, I see this in Peter's phrase, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Tell me, who's likely to ask? A stranger? A passerby? When was the last time anyone came up to you in Starbucks and asked you for the reason for the hope that was within you? It seems unlikely, I would suggest. No, who's going to ask you? A friend. That's who's going to ask. Somebody that you're in relationship with already. Now, Robert, one of our other pastors, preached a great sermon on this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor the point here, but the idea is very simple. Of course, people in the church should be friends with other people that are inside the church. Of course, there's a connection there and understanding there, enjoyment of um, friendship and, and fellowship and reading the scriptures and prayer and build each other up and encourage one another. Of course, that's a good thing. And of course, we should be friends with people who are outside of the church. To share our lives with, share our joys with, share our struggles with, share our Jesus with, as the Lord would give us opportunity. And so what a challenge for us to consider. Are we insular or are we outward faith? Do you find that you spend time with those who don't know the Lord but tend to avoid the topic of your faith? Or or worse, that you've now become part of a Christian bubble where you couldn't really say you're good friends with anyone who doesn't know the Lord? If we're to do this, take this unchanging God and this unchanging gospel to this ever-changing world, we've got to be in relationship. Point one. Second observation, as we see, as we consider how we can do this great task, is that it's the gospel that gives us answers. Point two, the gospel gives us answers. The Greek term Peter uses for defense, 
be prepared to make a defense to anyone is the Greek word apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics and it simply means to defend your position through reasoned and thoughtful argument. To defend your position through reasoned and thoughtful argument. And Peter tells us what? To be prepared. To be prepared to do this. To be ready to make such reasoned, thoughtful arguments so that other people might understand the hope of the gospel. In other words, Peter is saying, don't be like an emu. He'll just bury his head in the sand and act like these questions aren't out there. Live in sort of blissful and self-imposed ignorance. Don't, don't be that way. Don't bury your head in the sand. Instead, do your homework. Become familiar with the objections of those around you. Become familiar with the objections that come up in our culture. As you build relationships with people, what kind of questions do they ask? What kind of questions are you likely to hear again about same-sex marriage, perhaps, but on a host of other issues too? And having become familiar with those questions, become familiar with some answers too. The gospel provides robust, compelling answers. We're not afraid that truth will be found out. Sometimes in our insecurity we don't share because we fear that we won't know what to say. And Peter says, you may not know what to say. So go and find out. Ready yourself. Do your homework. Be it be active behind the scenes so that you will be ready, prepared to make a defense, a thoughtful, reasoned argument in response to the objections of our day. Third thing we see then as we consider how is it that we can take our unchanging God and the unchanging gospel to an ever-changing world. The context is relationship. The gospel gives us answers. And point three, the gospel also gives us courage. Courage. I get this not so much from verse 15 itself, but from the verse immediately before it. You see there in verse 14, Peter is writing to these believers and they're facing all kinds of objections and suffering and even persecution. And then he says, verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Friends, have no fear and don't be troubled. When Tim Keller was here with us a month ago, he said, quote, the Bible-believing community has largely started to duck, to duck for cover. We are a lot slower than we've ever been to identify ourselves publicly. I'm sure a number of factors, the fact that we've been told to keep faith private, and perhaps the dogmatism of our opponents, perhaps our own insecurities about being able to give an answer, any number of factors have combined to make many of us nervous about speaking up to make a defense. And so when an objection comes, we don't bury our heads in the sand like the emu, but we behave a little more like the hedgehog. What do they do in danger? They curl up and they get prickly. And so you'll make prickly statements in a sweeping and defiant way around the dinner table in your own home. But you'll lack the courage to engage with someone who actually holds the view that's so easy to condemn in their absence. And Peter says, have no fear. Do not be troubled. The gospel should affirm us out of such cowardice. Why? (laughs) Because when you have the approval of the king, you're not so worried about the opinion of your fellow peasants. 
secure in his favor, secure in his love. It puts a little courage in your soul, a little steel in your spine. Fear and panic are not the responses of those confident in the promises of a reigning Christ Jesus. The third thing that we see. Fourth and final observation as we consider how to take this unchanging God and this unchanging gospel to an ever-changing world. At point four, the gospel also gives us gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Again, we don't see this in verse 15. We see it in the verse immediately after. Verse 16, look down and see. Make a defense, yes, but do it with all gentleness and respect. The gospel gives you courage, but it ought not make you bombastic. The gospel gives you courage, but it ought not make you obnoxious. The gospel gives you courage, but it ought not make you arrogant. Far too many Christians meet the objections of our day with equally hostile and sometimes even inflamed rhetoric, answering with such a level of disdain that seems to repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. And here Peter is saying, don't be like an emu and bury your head in the sand. And don't be like a cowardly hedgehog and be all prickly. And don't be like a charging rhino either. What does a rhino do in danger? Full on attack. Do you know, they've even uh, seen rhinos charge trees and anthills. Why? Because they just love it, you know? They're just up for a fight. And I know a lot of Christians like that. Tension in the air, they are happy. Ready to throw down at a moment's notice. Lacking gentleness and respect. And listen friends, the gospel should affirm us out of cowardice. But the gospel should also humble us out of such pride. Any answers we have are ours solely by the grace of God. Like beggars, we show other beggars where we found bread. We want our words to emanate from hearts that have been captivated by Jesus. Summary. How do we take our unchanging God and his unchanging gospel to this ever-changing world? Through relationships where we communicate gospel answers with gospel courage and gospel gentleness and respect. And that's what our summer series is designed to do. We'll look at one of these objections each week and we'll seek to understand the biblical response to it. And yes, we have some objections in mind, but we'd really like to hear from you. We'd really like to hear what are the questions that you have. Uh, Email, text, uh, or tweet those to us and we'll incorporate them into the series as well. We feel convicted from this passage that God's will for us is not that we be a congregation of emus. Nor a congregation of hedgehogs, nor a con- Listen, DC has enough rhinos. <laughs> what kind of animal do we think we should be? A Christ-like animal. Now, one of you is going to get your knickers in a twist and say, he was fully God and fully human, there's no animal. And I'll say yes, but was he not also a lion? And was he not also a lamb? Lion enough to conquer all his and our enemies. Lamb-like enough to draw the most broken sinner to himself. And is that not the kind of people we want to be? Is that not how we want to navigate this milieu? Is that not how we want our church to be known? Let me close now 
Just by sharing that there was another news story that captured my attention this week, illustrating to us what it means to be a lion lamb. And it came from those families who loved lost ones in the attack on the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. I know you'll have heard the news report, and I hope you've also seen some of the footage of these families responding to the gunman in the courtroom. If you haven't, I encourage you to look it up. They speak with honest candor about how this man has taken from them the most precious things in their lives. And yet they speak with honest candor about their own brokenness and their own need of forgiveness and how they have found forgiveness in God and how they now extend this forgiveness to this attacker and encourage him to find forgiveness in the Lord as well. What is it that will make you forgive someone who has murdered your daughter? A lion lamb. A lion lamb. We seek to be like him as we seek to navigate this culture even as it polarizes. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Though times change as they always have, you do not. You're still the God of grace, and the grace of God is still ours for the taking. You shower us with goodness and kindness, taking away our guilt, removing our shame. And though we don't deserve such blessings from your hand, you're pleased to give them because it's just the kind of God that you are. So Lord, we want this gospel to shape us to shape the content of our thinking and shape the tone of our lives, that we wouldn't be emus or hedgehogs or rhinos, but would instead be Christ-like, lion lambs, the strong yet tender, that we might bring you, our unchanging God, and our unchanging gospel to this ever-changing world. These things we pray in the perfect name of Jesus. Amen.